Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your discussions about film. Did you hear this week uh, the X-Men film, The New Mutants, has been delayed yet again? Uh, for those that don't uh, don't know, um, well, I mean, it's been delayed, obviously, because of uh, coronavirus and stuff. Um, but this film was supposed to come out in 2018, 13th of April 2018, to be uh, precise. Um, but it was pushed back numerous times because other X-Men films were coming out. Deadpool 2 came out. And Dark Phoenix came out. So it's been pushed back from uh, April 2018 to February 2019. And then it's been pushed back to 2020 this year. And now it's been pushed back again um, to to, uh, August this year. Yeah, so originally it was April 13th, uh, 2018. Then it was February 19th, 2019. Then it was August 2nd, 2019, and then it was April 3rd, 2020. And then uh, it's now coming out in August sometime, but it's probably going to be delayed again, because I can't imagine that we'll be, get out to the cinemas in August. I feel that's a bit ambitious, maybe, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, apparently. So a funny thing about this film was that it, it was supposed... They originally, uh, Fox, who were, who were like the producers and the... Uh, production company behind all the X-Men films, they were like, oh yeah, we'll just want another kind of a younger team. So they were like, yeah, let's do this New Mutants film. And the, but the director kind of wanted a bit of horror in it, so they had a little little pinch of horror uh, sprinkled on top. But whoever put the trailer together didn't get that memo, and so the trailer was very horror-centric. It came out, I don't know, in 2017, before in preparation for the film coming out originally um and so uh, so and everyone loved it everyone loved the fact that it was a bit more horror it was like this superhero horror film and we were like yeah yeah it's something different so in amongst all of these delays the producers were like oh yeah let's reshoot the film then so that it can be scarier let's let's give the director what he actually wanted to do in the first place let's like make it scarier but because of the delays and stuff and because they're young actors They'd kind of grown out of the role a little bit, and they were kind of a little older and maybe a bit taller or kind of whatever. And so they actually, despite the fact that there was loads and loads of talk about reshoots and everyone was getting really excited that it was going to be like the first horror film for a superhero film, they never actually did any reshoots. So they presumably have just like recut the film so that it has the horror elements in maybe stuff that was on the cutting room floor is now in the film and vice versa so but um there was lots of talk that it was just going to come to disney plus because like dark phoenix kind of just bombed and they just sent disney sent that out to die because obviously disney bought bought fox last year um um which was uh why it was delayed uh from last year to this year but um yeah and everyone thought well they're just gonna They've let Dark Phoenix out to die. The New Mutants, you may as well just put it out on streaming. Like, who cares about it? But I think there's something in their contract that when they bought the bought the uh, rights to all the Fox uh, properties that they have to actually release them in cinemas. So I think it's uh, definitely coming out. Whether it'll come out in August, who knows? But it's uh, definitely going to come out in cinemas at some point. Um, and probably nobody will see it because who cares about it anymore? I mean, I'm curious. Uh, but... Imagine if it's great after all this. 
the, you get this film that's been delayed multiple times, there's proposed reshoots, studio meddling and everything, and then it's just an amazing film. Apparently it's supposed to be a trilogy, but obviously that's not going to happen. Uh, but yeah, imagine if it was good though, and they they were like, what do we do now? <laughs> do we carry this on? I mean, you could carry it on. Like, you could just completely separate it. Apparently it was supposed to be uh, tying in with Apocalypse, X-Men Apocalypse, and James McAvoy was supposed to have a role. Like a bit of a cameo, but that's not happening. So you could it's practically its own thing. So if it is good, then it probably work out for him. Uh, but who knows? Probably won't be. Uh, but uh, let's see. I mean, I'm not holding my breath. I don't think I've really seen the trailer. They looked all right, but who cares? Uh, it's probably completely different to that now. Um, but we'll see what happens when it eventually comes out. <laughs> Now it's time for that 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 part of the week, that part of the week where it's uh, alpha set. Uh, so for those that don't know, this is where I uh, watch three films that all begin with uh, the same letter of the alphabet and uh, just talk about them a little bit. Don't worry, there's no spoilers. So if you if you have watched them, then great. But if you haven't, that's also fine. Um, these are all films that I've never seen before, so we're going into it fresh. Uh, and the first one is a surprising one that I haven't seen before because it's quite a big film. Uh, it's Black Hawk Down. Um, so in this film, basically lots and lots and lots of soldiers are sent in to capture two top uh, guys in a Somali militia. Um, but it goes wrong and firefights ensue with lots and lots of heavily armed militia. Uh, this came out in 2001. Which is probably why I didn't see it, because I was kind of young at the time. Had a budget of $92 million, which is quite surprising, considering the amount of like helicopters and uh, Humvees and firefights and stuff that are in it, and explosions. It's quite a small budget, considering. Uh, and it made $173 million, which means that it didn't quite break even, because uh, remember, to break even, you need to make uh, twice the amount of your budget, because uh, marketing is generally same amount as your production budget so it'd have to make like what 184 million ish so i mean it may have made even you don't know uh, but for real, from the rule of thumb it's not quite uh, got there um which is surprising because of uh it might have done on hot media uh with dvds and stuff but uh just on the face of it it hasn't uh, it's got a 7.7 on IMDb, so people, the regular people liked it, and it's got a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, so the critics also liked it, uh, about the same amount, which is not always the case. I would give it a 7 out of 10, so I liked it almost as much as everyone else. Um, it was, it was very, very impressively executed, but I just thought maybe there was a little too much to focus on, um, because there's just, uh... So many people in this film that I'll give you a quick rundown of some of the famous faces. These are kind of people that I recognise from various things. You've got Josh Hartnett, uh, Ewan McGregor, Tom Hardy's in this, Ewan Bremner from Trainspotting on Wonder Woman, Tom Sizemore, who was in Saving Private Ryan, another war and police stuff, uh, Ewan Griffith, who was Mr. Fantastic in Fantastic Four, the uh, the okay ones, but maybe not very good ones, Eric Banner from the Bad Hulk film. Uh, William Fickner, who's in uh, TMNT, and he's he's one of those uh, that guy sort of people who's just in loads of stuff, but you and but you wouldn't necessarily know his name. Jason Isaacs, 
uh, who was uh, Malfoy's dad in Harry Potter and he's in Star Trek Discovery. Jeremy Piven, Mr. Selfridge in Entourage. Uh, Nikolai Costa-Waldo from uh, Game of Thrones. Orlando Bloom, Legolas is in this. Ty Burrell from Modern Family. I mean, those are just the names that I recognise. There's like loads more that I don't recognise. And it's just a massive, massive cast. That's what I mean. Like, there's loads of different things and people, squads and stuff to focus on. Um, but it was directed by Ridley Scott, who's a very good filmmaker. And he did a really good job of balancing all the characters and situations and kind of spending kind of almost even time, even amounts of times with people that you, you should be spending time with, um, which I thought was very good. There are some personal moments and kind of emotional beats to it, but there's like I said, there maybe is too many things happening for you to kind of invest in all the characters with the same amount of kind of emotion and depth. Um, the action is just absolutely relentless. So this hour, this is two and a half. Well, it's two hours twenty-ish minutes, and most of that is action. Uh, there's loads of time jumps, so this covers an eighteen-hour period, um, and so there's loads of kind of. It, like, it doesn't really give you that time to breathe. It'll move, Whenever there's, like, a lull in action, it'll, like, move on a few hours and then you get the next bit of action. Um, but that means that everyone has a moment to shine. So, we'll, like, Ewan McGregor has a nice bit. Josh Hartnett has a good bit. Tom Hardy has a good bit with Ewan McGregor, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's very good at kind of, like I say, balancing that stuff. And there's a good sense of togetherness uh, and kind of no man left behind. Everyone chipping in, uh, doing their own thing. It's very sort of... Um, the brotherly love sort of thing that was really good um, that I enjoy about war films. Um, but it's kind of one of those films that is a film based on bad... It's about the bad decisions made sort of at the top uh, that was based on minimal intel and then it's just the ground sort of just doing their best after that. There's quite a few sort of films like that, which I don't know, it's kind of surprising that like America would like decided to make a film about a time where they royally messed up. So, I don't know. Uh, and lots of people died. But, um, I mean, it's less about... It's less a film about the mission, and it's more a film about survival and kind of the ground soldiers rather than the people at the top. And it's more about uh, them working for each other and helping each other out. Um, the Black Hawk Down in the title is kind of helicopters that is... Well, is a helicopter that that crashes and like there's a kind of a large element of people trying to go and help the people that crashed and things like that um and secure that location um like i say the firefights were really well done the wounds were realistic so there was a bit of blood and gore in it but it's not over the top uh there was actually a um a point where um a guy's blown in half i think but Apparently, in real life, your spine would keep your legs attached, but they decided not to put that in because people wouldn't think it would be realistic, but it's actually more realistic than the legs falling off, uh, which is a nice uh, nice image for, to leave you with. I hope you're not eating right now. Um, yeah, the, there's some really nice sort of uh, acting in this as well. Everyone's really good. There's some emotion. Like I say, there was some emotional beats in it, and they played that really well. Um, the acting's very good. There's, uh, like I say, there's that sort of camaraderie uh, and togetherness that that is really good, and you can see that these people kind of got on well on set and off the set as well. Um, 
there's some in terms of cinematography and stuff there's some nice shots of helicopters especially towards the start and things with like the lineups and going through clouds and kind of formations and things and it's really nice there is some more the other shots as well of kind of like bullets coming out of the gun and uh, casings falling on the floor and things it's that's really good um there's some more artistic sound editing as well at times where they have kind of just silence or muffled gunfire uh which works well and like i say there's got it's got some of those nice kind of more artistic good looking set pieces to kind of mix it up between that and the realistic kind of on the ground people are getting shot at and um, because if you didn't have that it would be quite a difficult watch i think so it's good to have that variety because it's very uh samey in terms of kind of the action and uh what's happening um so yeah um there is a starting crawl that explains kind of what's going on i mean the kind of the one of the rules of cinema is show don't tell so maybe it would have been kind of useful just to have a little montage in there instead of having a starting crawl i'm not a huge fan of the starting crawl because to uh say a cliche i go i watch a film because i want to watch a film i don't want to read a film um there's also an ending crawl that explains the aftermath again that maybe would have been a bit more satisfying if it had been uh shown in a scene or even just told in a scene like they're in a in a meeting to some higher ups in a meeting room and stuff discussing the aftermath might have been useful uh but i mean there's always going to be some aftermath crawl and i, I appreciate that and especially with uh, a true story film which this is um i mentioned last week with american made you ought and uh, anthropoid that you always have those sort of after after the fact uh crawls at the end which i do which are a staple of uh of true story films which i think you do need and i think are useful and i do appreciate those and i i wouldn't get rid of them complete i don't want to get rid of them i just think in terms of the immediate aftermath of what happened i think it might be it might be a a nicer thing to actually see that or see that kind of happen in a boardroom rather than or see it explained in a boardroom rather than have it as text uh because it, it just i mean that the text is more kind of about the people that were involved in the real life stuff and what kind of happened to them afterwards which uh and kind of a, a dedication um if it in a way so i think that would have been nicer um but yeah there's some fun facts about this uh some of the radio chatter that's in the film is taken from actual radio transmissions from the battle which i thought was quite a nice touch i mean i wouldn't necessarily have known that but it's it's a nice touch uh there was apparently lots of stray dogs on the set of the film and you can see them in the film like there's just dogs running around uh which i think there was an effort made to kind of control them but ridley scott decided it's authentic and like they're just there so why not leave them in and uh eight of the dogs were actually adopted and taken to the u.s so uh and rehomed so there you go uh the in the film all the soldiers have uh names on their helmets which it's not accurate they, you don't actually have names on your helmets in real life but uh because there's so many characters and when you got all your uniform on and everyone's got the same sort of haircut and clean shaven and whatever they it could be quite hard to kind of tell who's who. So they've decided to put the names on helmets to help you uh, follow the characters, which is, I think is a good a good little touch. Um, like I say, this is a true story 
uh, film, and it's actually based on a book of the same name. So I think it was a guy that was uh, involved in the the operation. Um, there was a, and in the book there were a hundred key characters. So and in the film it was cut down to thirty nine. So I was saying that there was quite a lot of characters and lots of kind of movement around, and you probably need to focus on less characters, but. They focused on way less characters than there are in the book, so um, fair play to them. Uh, but it's it was a it's a hard job to try and like decide how many characters focusing on. But I think they did it. Like I say, I think they did a good job. Um, I like just to sum it up. I, like I say, I think it's very good. It's very competent. Uh, you may need to focus on less characters just so you can flesh them out a bit more, and maybe have a bit more of the kind of before and after the actual event itself. Uh, rather than kind of having practically two and a half hours of just firefights, which isn't it, like bad in any way, but uh, yeah, I just thought it might be a bit help, more helpful and a bit of a kind of break and a bit more rounding the story out if you have that before and after. Um, so yeah, let's move on to film number two. Uh, second film was Bone Tomahawk. Um so this is basically some folk are taken from a town in the Wild West by savages. Uh, the sheriff, the husband of one of the hostages, and a couple of other people are sent to uh, free the hostages and kill the savages. Um, so it came out in 2015. Uh, it had a budget of $1.8 million, so not very much at all. Uh, but it only made $0.4 million. It lost money then. Um, I don't... It ba- I, I don't think it had any marketing, basically. Because if he's only got a budget of $1.8 million, you're not really going to get any marketing for that. Um, it is also the director's first film, so that may have had some something to do with it in terms of marketing and budget and whatever. Um, it got 7.1 on IMDb. People liked it. Critics liked it an awful lot. They got nine, gave it a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. I gave it a 6 out of 10. Um, I thought it was kind of long, and the action in it was very sparse, because... Um, it was, uh, it, it, I mean, it is another Western, so I covered a Western a few, a couple of weeks ago with 310 to Humor, and I've said that they are kind of a bit longer and a bit more kind of slower paced. Um, so it has, does have that in terms of Western, but it was advertised as having horror elements and being particularly gruesome in parts. So I was expecting more of that and I was expecting a kind of a more of a fun film. I mean, it's understandable that it's advertised like that because the horror and the action scenes with the with the gore are the most memorable because not much else happens in between. So the things that you're going to talk about with these film with this film is the action and the horror and stuff. But that's not the majority of the film. The majority of the film, uh, as with a lot of westerns, I feel, is more about the journey. Um, like I say, most of the films, the journey. There's no real drama in it. The characters, I don't know, like a lot of these things, like in 310 to Yuma, there's a kind of a bit of a tension between the characters and they fleshed them out a bit. But with this one, they're not fleshed out that much. I mean, they're fleshed out a bit, but nothing, you could probably cut that journey down to about 10 minutes and you've probably got the sense of the idea of these characters just as much as you would have done if you, with the actual journey being like almost like an hour or more. Um, the husband that is has gone to find his wife. Um, he has a broken leg, so that's kind of a big, big element of the film. 
uh, that provides some discontent in the group. But I mean, like, no real issues come from it. There is a bit of a a bit of a scuffle, but there's nothing really that bad. They're all kind of just getting on with it. Um, but it does mean that he basically has to catch up because uh, they're walking off and he has to, like, stumble after them. Um, but that proves to be key later on in the film. So it's not a bad sort of plot device or, or character trait. I think it, it is a useful one, but they almost, like, they almost have try and wring too much drama out of it. Like, there's not enough drama in... Ring... They kind of ring true... I don't know. They try and get more drama out of it than there is, so they, they focus on it too much, I feel like. Um, and like I said, the, uh, there is horror el- horror elements in it, but they're not that horror There's no massive amounts of tension. There's no jump scares. I mean, jump scares aren't the greatest, but there's nothing like that or... There's, like, some gore and, like, weird-looking people, which, I mean, some of the uh, gore just kind of comes out of nowhere, and it sort of seems almost there for the sake of it. It's sort of almost kind of cartoonish and needlessly brutal. I mean, it, it I enjoyed it to a certain extent, but I just felt like it's neither a horror or a western. It needed to commit to eat one or the other because the gore in it is kind of jarring when you've been watching this western where nothing really happens for like an hour and a quarter and then all of a sudden like people's heads are getting chopped off or whatever i'm not saying that happens but uh yeah it's just a bit bit weird um there's also a few plot points that aren't followed up on uh, there's horses that are stolen from the town and then from the rescue party, but then no horses are seen in the rest of the film. I don't know whether that, maybe that was a budget thing. Maybe they only had, could only get some horses for a, a short while because of the limited budget. I don't know, but I feel like you, I feel like you didn't even need to have that in there, have the horses being stolen from the town. But I, I don't know, it's just a weird thing. Um, and then at the start. Uh, there was a, a, there's like a lot of talk about the savages and the fact that nobody wants to mess with them, and it sort of almost makes out that it's a tribe with like a large number, like I don't know, like thirty to fifty or something. But there's like only ten of them. Uh, like an organized group could just take them out if you just got together a group of like fifteen twenty people with guns and stuff. Just go and go and take them out. I don't know what the problem is, but. Anyway, I mean, the, the, there is great things about this film. The production design is great. I think lots of westerns do this really well. The costumes are really good. The sets look great. Um, Matthew Fox from Lost, um, he's in this film, and he has a one of the best mustaches I've ever seen. It's so good. It's fantastic. Kurt Russell also has a brilliant beard. He is He's always good uh, in terms of his facial hair. Um, and apparently... Uh, well, this is these are some fun facts. Apparently, the final film is a result of the first draft of the film. So, I mean, lots. I mean, especially critics like this film. So, well, they obviously had no problem with it at all and were happy with the first draft. But me personally, I think it could have done with a second or maybe a third draft, just to try and nail actually what it wanted to be and commit to that a bit more. Um, if it's having those horror elements in it, put them in it properly. Like, if you're going to do it, do it properly sort of thing. If you're doing a Western, do it. if you're going to do it, do it properly and have some more character-focused stuff. Um, 
Matthew Fox uh, said it was his favorite film to shoot. Um, apparently, he'd always wanted to be in a western, so apparently, so maybe that was why. Um, but um, he hasn't actually done any films since this, so it would have shot in like 2014, I imagine. So um, I don't know. I don't know what he's been doing since then. TV, I guess. Um, but yeah, like I say, I just think it was it was a decent film, but I think it either could, it was two hours long, and I feel like it could have been you could have cut that down by like 20, 30 minutes just to get rid of the the journey so much, like, and either put more horror in it or more western in it, like just commit to one or the other. Um, but I thought it was decent. Um, but third film, um, is buried. Uh, so this is basically Ryan Reynolds trapped in a box underground. Um, he's got a, a lighter, um, a phone, and a, that's it, really. Um, it came out in 2010. Uh, the budget is uh, small, $3 million, um, and it made $19.5 million, So it made some money. Ding, 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 ka-ching. Um, People liked it, 7 on IMDb. Critics also liked it, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. I also liked it, I give it a 7 out of 10. It's very good, got a lot of twists and turns in it. Um, I won't get into all those, uh, uh, really. But um, I just thought it was amazing work, considering the limitations. Because basically the whole film is just Ryan Reynolds in a box. And there's no other actors in it. Everything else is through the phone. But it's just very tense throughout. There's lots of emotional moments. Ryan Reynolds is just absolutely incredible. Like, you really feel what he's going through. Um, he's not... It doesn't feel like he's often given the chance to do something like this, where he's kind of emoting all this much. He's just playing, like, the... He's usually just playing, like, quirky, kind of funny character. Um, but, yeah, it was really kind of refreshing to see him to do something like this. And, I mean, it's not easy to do... I mean, I don't necessarily know because I'm not, like, an actor, but it doesn't seem easy to do this because you he... It, like, in 95 minutes, there's only, probably only about three minutes when he's not on screen. And so it's not easy to do... To hold a film all by yourself. Um, but he does he does a really good job. Uh, the lighting is very good. It's frustrating at times. But I mean it's due to the situation. Like a flickering light of flame. Or a torch that doesn't work. So I thought the lighting was just really good. Um, the cinematography is impressive too. Uh, and, like the amount of angles that they managed to get. Uh, the amount of like kind of variety. And different and interesting ways that they kind of make the scenes not feel stale and the fact because you because it is just all in this one box it's slightly bigger than a person but it's the amount of kind of angles and interesting uh, positions that they managed to get uh and in terms of the lighting like i said before it just makes it uh it it doesn't make it feel too stale um but there are a couple of kind of panning shots which i thought were a bit weird because it takes you outside of the confines of like the like the dimensions of the box and they're done for dramatic effect and i appreciate that but i just thought it's it all it almost takes you out of it a little bit because the rest of the film is shot inside the box the lighting is all like only due to the lighting that's actually used in the like the ryan Reynolds' character is using in the film so i mean it like the rest of the film they do a really good job at sort of conveying the claustrophobia and the tightness of the space and the in and you see that in the fact that you never really see more than a small portion of 
Ryan Reynolds' body. Like you don't see like a full pan full shot of him apart from in those panning shots, which I just find which they just took me out of the film a little bit. Um and I just feel like you just could have taken those out. Um the voice acting over the phone is is great. I mean most of the film's plot hinges on the stuff over the phone, so they the voice acting, if it was flat, it could just make or break this film, I feel. Also, as well as, like, obviously, uh, the performance of the lead character. But all the people that uh, Ryan calls, Ryan's character calls during the film, they portray their character well. They get across their emotions that are needed in that moment. And the conversations are, like, well-structured. It's got interruptions in it. There's misunderstandings. There's pauses. It's just very well done. It They feel like proper phone calls. Um there's a bit later on with a snake that people complained about and thought was a bit silly i mean i thought it was fine and like i don't know what i don't really know kind of the ins and outs of that area or the behaviors of snakes so it seemed plausible to me and it created like an incredibly tense moment in the film so i didn't mind it um the main thing that people talk about with this film is the ending, really. I'm not going to do any spoilers, don't worry. But the ending for me uh, is one that I would typically love. It's one that... It's kind of a ballsy move. It's one that I really like it when films do this. Um, but it just didn't land for me. Um, other people absolutely adore the ending, but I don't know what it was. Whether it was my viewing situation. I do have massive... Like I say, I've got massive respect that they did this. Um, and I love that they did it and the idea of it, but it just, it's like the execution just wasn't there for some reason. I couldn't put my finger on it. I don't know what, whether there was maybe too much flip-flopping in the the earlier parts of the film in terms of the plot, like the to and fro and like doing red herrings and misleading you and stuff. So it didn't have the impact that I was looking for, but it just didn't land for me a little bit. But I would highly recommend the film. Um... I always think that single location thrillers are always better than people would expect. So anything that takes place in just in like the one room or whatever, or in a confined space, I always find that those films are actually really good. Um, it's definitely emotionally draining, and because it's so tense throughout, and there's you feel what what he feels. Um, but some fun facts about it: uh, it was on the two thousand and nine. That was a weird accent there. Two thousand and nine blacklist. So this is the uh, the list of uh, screenplays that haven't been made that are voted by producers, and if it's on the blacklist, it, it's kind of one of the most popular ones. Um, the phone number uh, for the FBI office that's uh, in Chicago that's mentioned in the film is the actual number of the real life FBI office in Chicago, which is a nice touch. Um, most films are shot out of order, so they do it based on because they kind of want to utilize locations and actors and crew and things they don't want to have to like set up and set down but because all of this was set in that one location and stuff they actually shot this in sequence which was really quite rare um and also ryan reynolds's birthday comes up twice in this film uh there's a once uh one the first time is um when he reads a note that's left for him in the in the box uh to do a ransom video and it says the date is the 23rd of october which is bit is his birthday um also uh when he's filming a message for his family uh when he thinks he's gonna die uh he says that his date of birth 
as 3.23.76, which is correct apart from the, the month, because uh, obviously it's October, so it'd be 10.23.76, because they're American and they do it in the weird way. Though if you're American, you do you. You do it your way, and we, we will do it our way, because uh, we would say 23.3.76. But uh, yeah, like I say, I'd definitely recommend this film. Um, if I was to recommend one of these films the most, I'd say... You know what? I'd actually say buried because of the because I'd like to see what the ending is of people because and how people reacted to it because Black Hawk Down was just a very very competent war film but buried had some interesting elements to it that I think people would enjoy. So now we're talking about a film that wasn't. So this. Uh, so each week I'm looking at a film that uh, didn't actually get made. It, for some reason, they went into production. There was uh, pre-production done on it. Um, and the, I'll just kind of uh, explore what it was going to be and why it didn't get made. Um, so this week we're looking at At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, so this was a film that was set to be directed by Guillermo del Toro, who you might know from Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim... Uh, got one best director at the Oscars for The Shape of Water. Um, so it's based on an H.P. Lovecraft novella. Uh, and for those that aren't aware, Lovecraft is kind of a big uh, kind of horror writer from back in the day. I don't actually know what it, what kind of period, but uh, he pioneered cosmic horror and kind of otherworldly creatures and lore, uh, people facing the unknown, going mad. Uh, famously, there's Cthulhu, uh, who's like this big, big squid monster god thing. Um, he's kind of influenced a lot of uh, pop culture. Uh, a lot of some examples of kind of Lovecraftian films are that kind of have elements of of his work in them, uh, and his style are Alien, The Thing, Event Horizon, The Mist, uh, The Cabin in the Woods, Annihilation. So these are just kind of the, the sorts of kind of otherworldly things that you're not really quite sure about and the kind of unknown. Um, so the novella, the story basically is that explorers and scientists go to Antarctica, uh, they find some ancient otherworldly ruins, uh, and then they're kind of maybe tamper with it a little bit and and uh, monsters and kind of aliens and existential questions about life and kind of the like the greater things and kind of what came before people and things like this kind of form from that. Um, so Guillermo del Toro originally wrote a script for this uh, with Matthew Robbins in two thousand and six. Uh, he took it to Warner Brothers because he worked with Warner Brothers on uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Blade Two, some other film, some other of his uh, earlier films that he directed. Uh, but Warner Brothers would not greenlight it. Uh, they weren't confident enough in it. Because they wanted to make it R, uh, Del Toro and Matthew Robbins wanted to make it R-rated, because uh, it's kind of to make it true to the source. Um, but Warner Brothers weren't happy with that. Um, that one of their big issues was the fact that the source material is public domain, so you can't really track the popularity of it. You don't know how many people have necessarily bought those things or are interested in it. Um, so they can't really get a gauge of how many people would actually go and see a film made on a Lovecraft thing. Uh, and the fact that there's no happy ending in it or no love story in it, 
um, which would all, was also a bit of a turn off, uh, apparently. So uh, it was put on the back burner until 2010. And then two very famous people got involved. James Cameron, um, of all people, uh, who has produced and directed Titanic, uh, Avatar, Terminator films. Um, he was looking to produce it. Um, he didn't actually want any creative involvement. He just wanted to get it made. Um, but this was 2010 and uh, Avatar had just come out. So it was the uh, the rise of 3D and he was right at the forefront. So he wanted to get it made and get it in 3D, uh, basically. Uh, and also Tom Cruise uh, got involved in it. Um, he was big into this he wanted uh, he wanted to produce it as well he wanted to get it made um and he he was gonna star in it james mcavoy and chris pine were also names that were thrown around for the lead role but del toro actually wanted tom cruise from the start so the fact that he he was he was there that it was uh, a good get for him uh david david cameron that's that's not the filmmaker at all you don't want him being involved in your film uh james cameron uh said that the design work, the physical maquettes, CG test scenes, the artwork is just phenomenal. Um, I looked it up. A maquette is a prelim- preliminary sculpture or sketch. Uh, so basically just some of the artwork that he'd seen before. Uh, he just said it was great. Uh, there was over 300 pieces of art and storyboards and kind of things like that uh, for him to get involved. Um, so you think with... Uh, Del Toro directing and, and writing it after having successes with like Hellboy and things like that and Pan's Labyrinth. James Cameron uh, being on board and Tom Cruise starring in it. Uh, you'd think it would be uh, a good bet. Uh, and Del Toro did as well. He said, we thought we had a very good, safe package. It was $150 million. Tom Cruise and James Cameron producing Industrial Light and Magic doing the effects. Here's the art. This is the concept because I think, really think, big scale horror would be great. But there was a difference of opinion, and the studio didn't think so. Um, Industrial Light and Magic, uh, the people that were doing the effects, they are the big, big, big effects company. Basically, they have done Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, Harry Potter. They've done everything. Um, but Warner Brothers still weren't on board. Um, but who's that peeking around the corner? It's oh, it's Universal Studios. They they were peeking around, going oh, we're we're interested in this, but they still had a problem, uh, as uh, studios do, uh, and their problem was the rating, uh, because because it's they still wanted an R rating on it, but R rate, but if you open it up to PG thirteen, you can get way 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 more people in in the, the cinema, uh, to see it, um. Because you get families going to see it and things like that. But Del Toro said, I think the art should be worn like a badge of honour in promoting the movie. Because it was, uh, because it's kind of close to the source material and stuff. So uh, Universal also passed on it. Um, so after all these years, it doesn't look good. But you know what? It only gets worse. Because uh, in 2012, Ridley Scott came out with a film called Prometheus. Um and that's so that's a year after talks with Universal fell through. Um, and as mentioned before, aliens love crafting and Prometheus was even more so. Um, there was apparently scenes in it that are 
almost exactly the same as written in Del Toro's at the Mountains of Madness script. Um, so to kind of refresh your memory, if you've not seen, if you've, uh, if it's been a while since you've seen Prometheus, or even if you haven't seen Prometheus at all, uh, the plot of it is the group of explorers find some Asian ruins, they tamper a bit, and then there's a storm that starts a series of unfortunate events. Not Lemony Snicket's unfortunate events, but another series of unfortunate events. But at the Mantis of Manus had the exact same thing. There's just, there's uh, obviously the group of explorers find some Asian ruins, they tamper a bit, and then there's a storm. Uh, Prometheus also has a scene later on where Michael Fassbender's character, who's like an android, he discovers a control room with blue orbs and a holographic map. And uh, the Mountains of Manuscript also had basically the same thing. Um, so Prometheus came out in 2012. Uh, and the Mountains of Madness, let's say it was on schedule uh, to be made um, in 2010 with either Warner Brothers or Universal. Um, let's say they'd given the green light and it go ahead. Then that would have come out in 2013 originally. Uh, so you would have had two very similar R-rated films that had near identical scenes that would have come out uh, in like a year. Uh, so that probably wouldn't have gone down well and uh, they probably would have eaten each other's box offices a little bit. Um, so Del Toro moved on. Uh, he made Pacific Rim that came out in 2013 instead. Um, but he's very much still interested in making it as uh, a lot of these kind of things are people the directors, if it's their passion project, they are still wanting to make it. Um, he brought it up at a Comic Con in 2014, apparently. Um, but um, not much has been heard after that about it. But um, there is hope because um, Del Toro also had a Pinocchio, a stop motion Pinocchio film, no less, that. Um, wasn't going ahead, but Netflix had bought the rights to it, and now it is going ahead. Um, apparently, for some reason or other, it wasn't necessarily feasible through a typical production studio, uh, but Netflix bought the rights to it, and now that's getting made. Um, so maybe if that goes well, Netflix will give them the go-ahead to make it The Mountains of Madness. I mean, budget wouldn't necessarily be a problem. Uh, Six Underground, which is that Michael Bay film, that had a budget of $150 million, so uh, if he wanted, I could see him doing Netflix giving him the money to do an R-rated film. Um, he's one best director, so if he gets a big name like a Tom Cruise in it or James McAvoy or Chris Pine, I could easily see this getting uh, and being a Netflix film. So, I mean, never say never, as with a lot of these films, uh, never say never, but at the moment, uh, it's kind of wait and see. Last thing that we're moving on to is just a little bit of fun. Each week, I look at some quick fic. So this is where I make up some, just a just a little quick bit of fiction. I will take a one of 20 franchises that I have written down. I will take one of 20 characters that I have written down. And I will take one of four uh, film types uh, that I have written down, either a prequel, sequel, spin-off, or a reboot. And I will then put them all together and try and come up with something. So I will either make a prequel, sequel, uh, spin-off or reboot of something of a franchise with a different character thrown into the mix. We've had um, The Matrix with John Wick. We've had, uh, what was the first one? We've had Fast and Furious with the minions in it. So let's see what we're going to get this week. 
Uh, we are making... I need to scroll down so I can actually see. We're making a spin-off. We're making a spin-off of... What franchise are we spinning off this week? It is Indiana Jones with Buzz Lightyear. Now, this is interesting. How do you spin off Indiana Jones with Buzz Lightyear? Hmm. So, does everybody remember 2008? Does everyone remember the worst Indiana Jones film? The one that, you know, the one that had aliens in it. Well, maybe we spin off from that. I don't know why you would do, because everyone wants to forget it. But it's the only thing that I feel that would fit in. Um, So it's been enough, and we uh, look at the aliens... Um, Buzz Lightyear is uh, maybe fighting those aliens. I don't know. This is a tough one. You'd have to make Buzz Lightyear an actual person character rather than a toy. Um, But I think that's a possibility. It wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be an Indiana Jones film at all, would it really? Because it'd basically be a... It'd basically be a sci-fi action film with the aliens from... Uh, Indiana Jones so it's a very very tenuous link to Indiana Jones it may be some sort of a prequel or maybe even a sequel who knows because uh, the aliens because the aliens were in the spaceship so you so they go in the UFO and they fly off and then Buzz Lightyear fights them so it's like a it's, it's almost a sequel but it's it's a spin-off because it's not got Indiana Jones in it um, so that's one option uh, you set it on a different planet and it's basically a sci-fi film with the aliens from the bad one other option is that Indiana Jones is not a toy from the 1990s, but it's a toy from maybe the 1910s or even earlier. Um, and it maybe gets a redesign, maybe he's made out of tin. And maybe there's some sort of secret key or message inside of Buzz Lightyear. Um, maybe he's, there's, you pop open the head and there's some secret button, I don't know, that opens some secret tomb or something. You make him a MacGuffin, you make him... Make a Buzz Lightyear toy a MacGuffin. So it wouldn't necessarily be Indiana Jones and the... Maybe you could you could uh, make the film... Well, it wouldn't necessarily be a spin-off then because it'd be an Indiana... Maybe you spin it off and you have it being a... Uh, I don't know, like a short round film or something where it's like a young, a young kid looking for a particular thing in like a school or something and he's using a an indiana jones he's using a buzz Lightyear toy to find it um so it's not kind of a world ending thing there's no like crypts or anything to to find there's no uh massive anything of massive historical value but it is an adventure film in terms of like there's MacGuffins, and you're using uh a a tin toy of a buzz like yeah to find i don't know the secret uh maybe it's like a secret treasure map that in the school that uh some pirate was there and they like finding some treasure i don't know something like that something kind of vaguely ties in and there's a buzz like your tin toy involved because the maker was the the toy maker was involved in kind of the finding of something of the treasure or whatever something like that um so yeah there's two options there there's a weird sci-fi film that's nothing like an indiana jones film or there's a 
a film that's more for kids with maybe a short round uh, using a tin uh, tin toy of Buzz Lightyear to find some treasure or something or other. Who knows? Because um, I feel like you can make a Buzz Lightyear an actual MacGuffin that's like a religious artifact or something. That makes no sense whatsoever. But I think you can make him a MacGuffin that you could use him to find something. Um, yeah. I mean, there was this space stuff that was happening in like the 50s and the 60s. So maybe you can set it something like that. You set it in that sort of area where those sort of toys might have been, may have been a thing. So where I, there's some ideas. It's maybe not as interesting as the other ones that I had the other week. But uh, that's what it is. You you gotta you gotta do what you can with the cars that you dealt. Uh, so we're making if you if you think you can come up with a better idea, then I'd love to hear it. Uh, if you can come up with a better Indiana Jones spin-off with it, Buzz Lightyear, um, please get in touch uh, at, on Twitter at All Out Walker, uh, or you can email at filmmeuppod at outlook.com. That that is the same contact details if you want to let me know what you thought of uh, any of the films that have been mentioned what you think of the new mutants if you're going to see it or not um, or if you just or if you don't care at all um, if you I don't know I don't know what I was going to say then I have lost my train of thought uh, yeah that's about it thank you very much for listening um, if you also follow me on Twitter I will be posting up on Monday, the films that I will be looking at next week, so for set C. Uh, yeah, so that's where you can find those, and then you'll be able to watch those if you like as a bit of a film club, or you can feel free not to. Uh, it's completely up to you, you don't need to, there's no spoilers. Um, but yeah, go out and watch uh, Buried, and uh, I will see you next week. Bye.